If you have a Bible, you can open to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. We'll look at verses 36 to 49 this morning. Luke 24, 36 to 49. The text is printed in the bulletin, and there are Bibles available on the table in the back. Um, and this is, again, uh, drawing close to the end of our series on the life of Jesus Christ. We've got just uh, this week and next week planned in this series, and then um, after that, the end. No, after that, Jonah. Uh, and then something else that I haven't figured out yet, but um, Luke 24. Let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Um, <clears throat> Father, we're thankful for your word. We know we're not as thankful as we should be. Um, we know that we don't have the connection to your word that we ought to have, and we do feel bad about that. And we pray that you would um, remove all of our guilt, remove um, every hindrance in our hearts and in our minds from us receiving your word the way that it was intended to be received as good news to us, a message of your love and your power to forgive and to save and to transform us. We pray that you would help us to understand your word this morning through the help of your Holy Spirit. And we pray all of this for the glory and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so, um, I, don't, I don't often take polls, but I'm interested in actually seeing hands. Raise your hand if you've never seen the movies or read the books, The Lord of the Rings. If you've never seen or, or read. The Lord of the Rings. I can't believe you raised your hands. <laughs> you know you should have seen the movies by now or read the books by now, right? Uh, so it's your own fault if this is a spoiler. Um, at the end, at the end of the first book or movie, the, the Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf, who is a wizard, um, just explain that much. Uh, he's the gray wizard, right? Gandalf is fighting an ancient demon of the deep in the caverns of someplace unpronounceable. And, um, and he's, he's fighting this demon. It's huge, it's terrifying, and it's powerful. 
and he's doing it to buy his friends um, a few moments to escape. And they see him plunge into the chasm, into the depths, into the abyss, uh, while fighting this demon. Uh, clearly, they see him plunge to his death, and they were sad. Um, they were so sad, they were so demoralized that their wise leader here was dead that some of them thought their whole quest was now just over, doomed to failure. How can we go on? Our leader, our wise leader, our teacher, our guide is dead. And in the second of the books, the movies, The Two Towers, uh, we find out that Gandalf did die, and he was victorious in his fight with the demon, but that, um, but that he was raised from the dead. And now he's not Gandalf the Grey anymore, he's Gandalf the White, and he's now the super wizard, you know? And um, he was the same Gandalf, but also different, right? It's like he hardly even remembers his own name anymore. He's the same wizard, but different, uh, better. And when his companions met him, uh, it was a surprise to them. And at first they didn't recognize him, and actually they thought that he was the bad guy, you know? Uh, they thought that he was Saruman. You've got Aragorn the human, who is the returning king. You've got Legolas the elf and um, Gimli the dwarf. And they'd been tracking their little hobbit friends who'd been taken by the bad guys. They were tracking them through the forest when they encountered Gandalf, the new Gandalf. And, and they encountered him thinking that he was their enemy. Uh, and Because they obviously never suspected that that Gandalf would be raised from the dead, right? They thought, this was Saruman. This is our enemy, the other white wizard. And, uh, and I love what Gandalf says to them as they start to transition from terror and surprise uh, away from that, and they begin to recognize him as this is their friend who died. <laughs> we saw that happen. Uh, what Gandalf says to them, he's referring to the hobbits that they were tracking, and he says... They met someone they did not expect. Does that comfort you? Like they, they, the hobbits had met him. They went, they went by there just a couple days before. They met him, the risen Gandalf, the new white wizard Gandalf. They met someone they did not expect. Does that comfort you? Um, and with their initial presuppositions here, their initial shock at meeting the white wizard, their their assumption that he was the bad guy, uh, their reaction was fear, it was not comfort, right? Does it comfort you that they met someone they did not expect? No, <laughs> right? They met you, no, I'm, I'm afraid for what happened to them. We know that comfort is the appropriate response after the fact. All right. Does that comfort you? That should be the appropriate response, but you know that after the fact. That response doesn't make any sense until after the fact because of their worldview because of their presuppositions regarding their circumstances. This is, um, so in order to be comforted by meeting this someone they did not expect, um, he was going to have to fully reveal himself to them. Right? He'd have to tell them the story about his death and his resurrection to help them interpret what they were seeing right now because they couldn't understand it. They were terrified. Right? He'd have to reshape their worldview. He'd have to reshape their assumptions so that it would be a comfort. Um, 
Major shifts would need to take place in their thinking if they were going to accept the fact that this was their wizard, really alive again, glorious in his resurrection, the same but different. Major shifts would need to take place in their thinking if they were going to accept that. And Gandalf said that all of this, his returning to them, came at the turning of the tide. Right? Just when things were looking their bleakest, here is the kind of good news that gives one comfort and hope that really changes everything. And uh, It's almost as if Tolkien were familiar with Luke's gospel, the end of it, Luke chapter 24. Because here we have the disciples on the day Jesus rose from the dead. This is still the same day. We've been looking at it for a few weeks. All of it, Luke 24 there. Um, The same day he rose from the dead. And they're gathered late in the night to talk about the appearances that he has made since he has risen from the dead to a few of their friends. Right? He's appeared to Peter. He's appeared to Cleopas. And and it says, as they were talking about these things, which you can imagine, late in the night, the day Jesus rose from the dead, all the crazy events, hearing about the angel, hearing about the sightings of him, as they're talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace, <laughs> peace with you, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, which is basically a ghost, right? They thought they saw a ghost. Here was a new piece of data that their minds couldn't accept. It didn't work in their worldview. does not compute. They knew that dead people didn't come back to life, and here he is suddenly appearing among them. And the easiest thing for them to accept, the easiest thing to accept out of all the terrible options is, uh, is that this must be a ghost. This must be a spirit. And that's a frightening prospect, but that's all they had. It couldn't possibly be him actually alive again uh, from the dead, even though they've heard it from the angels, even though they've had a testimony of it from a few of their friends who had seen him. And again, this is very realistic, right? This is very realistic, um, which supports the truthfulness of the account. The disciples had the same objections to the resurrection that any modern mind would have. They had the same objections to the resurrection that any modern mind mind would have. They were not superstitious saps, ready to just believe anything. They were regular people who had experienced, they had witnessed, they had taken down the body of their dead loved one. They were still in the grieving process, which was uh, starkly and unexpectedly interrupted by Jesus here, alive again. In fact, these are the most reliable kinds of witnesses to an event like this, people who are just like you, who have the same reservations as you. Someone might accuse them of imagining things, of seeing what they wanted to believe, but the record shows, the eyewitness testimony shows, that Jesus himself had to work to convince them or else they would not have believed it. Um, They met someone they did not expect. Does that comfort you? No. Um, didn't comfort them yet. Based on exist- existing expectations, they thought he was a ghost. That's pretty scary. The thing that convinced them otherwise, that he was not a ghost, that he was not just a spirit, was the reality of his body and his explanation of what happened. And that, that, that reshaped their worldview so that it could compute. Um, he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? 
See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he knows the thoughts of their hearts. Um, In fact, this is the same language that we've seen a couple times in Luke's gospel already. Uh, Luke 2, Simeon prophesied to Mary about the little baby that she was holding in the temple and said that he would reveal the, the thoughts of many hearts. He knows them all, and he's going to reveal them, and he's going to help us with those. He addresses their assumptions, the disciples' assumptions, and he addresses their reservations about his resurrection. He's very concerned to persuade them that it really is him really crucified for them. He's showing them his hands and his feet, which where the marks are, right? He really was crucified for them, and he really is risen for them bodily. He's really like them, even though now he has been made more. Um, When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Uh, So they had an overwhelming emotional response. They're starting to transition from disbelief, right, to this is really happening. This is true. Um, and, and their response is one of overwhelming emotion. I, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Right? And so it is possible to disbelieve, to be right on the brink of faith, basically, to disbelieve not out of willful rebellion, but because it's hard to believe. This is just really hard to believe because of the magnitude of the reality that we're called to believe and because of just our weakness, right? the weakness of our faith, the weakness of our minds, the fact that our minds have not been reshaped by God's own worldview. And John Calvin said about this, um, how kindly and gently Christ bears with the weakness of his followers. They, now it's for joy that they can't believe, and he still seeks to persuade them just give me something to eat. We'll, we'll, we'll eat together. I'll show you, you know. How kindly and gently he bears with the weakness of his followers. He addresses their reservations by offering himself up to their physical senses, to their sight, to their touch, obviously to their hearing. And so <clears throat> we need to consider the ramifications, you know. Uh, what are the ramifications of these physical interactions with the bodily resurrected Christ. The interactions that he had physically with his disciples, he's the same Jesus they knew before, only different. Only more. Different in that he can now enter locked rooms without the use of doors. Instantly vanishing from their sight and appearing among them at will, apparently. Different in ways that we can't understand. We can't even imagine. But same, he has a real physical body. He has flesh and bones, he says. He's touchable. He eats. That's a part of his humanity. And in fact, his hands and feet still bear the marks of the crucifixion, and other gospel writers make this clear, um, showing that there is, in some way, a continuation from his life before his death. His first life, while he was still with us, before the cross, 
somehow that carries through to after the cross. Right? And you can see it in his hands and in his feet, in the marks of the nails. And that changes everything. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. The implications cannot be overstated. It means that everything that he said before the cross is unavoidably true. It means that he really is who he says he is. He's even the son of God himself. He is God the son in the flesh. It means that God and humanity have been united forever in his person. Forever. God and humanity in his person. In the incarnation, we have the meeting of God and man. It's, Jesus Christ is fully God. He always has been. And he always will be. And now he is fully human. And he always will be. So that we have the meeting, the union of God and man, the, the creator and the creature. God has made such a commitment to his creation, to this universe, maybe even especially to humanity, that he has united himself to his creation in the person of Jesus Christ. He is both creator and creature. And that means that matter matters, right? Stuff, substance, the things we see and touch and taste and smell and hear, the stuff in this world, uh, it matters. Not in and of itself, because it wouldn't even be apart from God. It doesn't matter in and of itself, but because he has assigned tremendous value to the physical world by joining himself to it in order to redeem it and to set it right forever. In Jesus Christ, we have the meeting, the union of eternity and time. God entered into the motions of our universe to walk through it with us, and he's not just fled out the escape hatch on that one. He is now a part of time, that which he has created He's a part of time now. In, uh, in Jesus Christ, we have the meeting, the union of spirit and body. And because of the resurrection, we know that that's not just a temporary meeting. The meeting of spirit and body is not just a temporary meeting. In the resurrection, we see that God unites himself to us for our good forever. He really did that. And that meeting includes the continuing of our physical nature, ultimately the perfect renewing of the whole physical world and everything God has made in the new heavens and the new earth. So this world is not a throwaway world to God. He's already committed himself. This world is not a throwaway world to him. By his grace, he is absolutely committed to making all things new, and the risen Lord Jesus is the beginning of that commitment. He's the proof of that commitment. He is that commitment. God will certainly transform his creation. He will certainly mend it. He will certainly give it new, eternal life. And this is a corrective for the thoughts of many hearts, right? Uh, he's revealing the thoughts of our hearts, and he's fixing those. He's helping us with those. This is a corrective to the thoughts of many hearts, even in the church. Our eternal destiny is not some... Uh, ethereal, mystical, kind of meta-reality. Our eternal destiny is not 
it doesn't lack substance. Uh, our future with God is like hitting the reset in some ways, back to the Garden of Eden, only better because now you don't have the possibility of us messing things up again. Right? Uh, it's these bodies in this world somehow that we're looking forward to, only better, better bodies in a better world. Um, it's eating and drinking and working and playing just like you've always been doing, but better. Um, you can see it first in the resurrected Jesus. And the point of this passage here is that um, what you see in him is what you get in the end. It's what you get in the new beginning. It's what you get in the resurrection, the new heavens and the new earth. <clears throat> Cindy read from Isaiah chapter 25, and in verse 6 it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. This is not only symbolic language. You know. Being with God in the new heavens and the new earth in better bodies in this world but better will at least involve a feast that is beyond our imagining. And he says, Isaiah says later in 65, uh, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. So these are the kinds of things that um, in some sense, the people of Israel, the ancient people of God, before Jesus came onto the scene, they were sort of expecting God to come and to make things right in this world. In this world, that he was going to fix this. They just didn't understand that it had to come through one man. First, and as a representative, as the first fruits. Right? That one man had to go through the process first on our behalf so that then in him we could follow. That's just what escaped the people of Israel. But that's what happened in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What he is, what he did, what's coming to him is all ours because... He united himself to us and became our substitute, became our representative. And he refers to that when he says, when he's trying to persuade his disciples here about the physicality of his body, right? He says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Right? Um, Luke Johnson, a commentator on this, says, flesh and bones suggest not only being human, but the sharing of common humanity. Right? Because that... That phrase, flesh and bones, um, kind of harkens back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis when Adam sees Eve, who is like him, who is from him, who is united to him, in a sense. It says, at last, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. And, and um, so that flesh and bones suggests not only being human, but the sharing of common humanity. Jesus is pointing here to his kinship with us. Right? He shares his humanity with us. 
And that means something, right? Because we've been talking about this throughout our series on the life of Jesus Christ. In his incarnation, in the Son of God, stepping into time, stepping into creation, becoming a human, he, he took our real humanity to himself in his person. And in his baptism, he united himself to us in our sinful flesh, right? In our broken state, he united himself to us. And in his temptation, he was our champion. He overcame the devil himself on our behalf. And in his death, he bore our guilt for us at the cross under God's righteous anger. And so also in his resurrection, we have our humanity in union with him, fully restored and more. Our humanity, this fully restored and more in his resurrection. It is made new. It's made everlasting. Jesus will never die again. And he shares his immortal glory with us by his grace. As he is now, so also we will be when he comes again at the resurrection, when he makes all things new. It says in uh, 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him. And in a couple of places where Paul talks about the resurrection, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That means uh, it's not just a euphemism for death. It really is in the Christian mindsets. Sleep, uh, death is like sleep because you're going to wake up again, right? It's not the end. Um, It says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised imperishable. And we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, the tent is this image of kind of a temporary thing, but it's not temporary in the sense that you're going to get something entirely new and different and unrelated at all. It says, we know that if this tent, this, our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house, not a tent, it's a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, and we would be further clothed. Not that we would be unclothed, that we'd be apart from our body, but that we would be further clothed by this super body, right? We would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. He's given us His Spirit as a guarantee that we will be further clothed by immortality and glory, just as Jesus has been already. And in Romans 8... He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The creation, the whole creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, and the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly 
for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Um, all of this because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what this means. Our resurrection on the last day will be the swallowing up of life by life. You will have a body like that of the resurrected Lord Jesus. You will be revealed as you were always meant to be, as sons and daughters of God, and all creation will rejoice and be free when that happens. You will be glorified in your humanity, flesh and blood, and spirit, with the very glory of Jesus' own humanity shared with you as a gift of his grace. The God of life will swallow up death. As it said in Isaiah 25, the God of life will swallow up death forever, guaranteed, proven, demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, pledged, promised, assured by his spirit who's given to us. <clears throat> As it says later in, um, in our passage, in the second paragraph, and we're not going to talk about much from the second paragraph this week. We'll kind of finish up next week talking about the second paragraph, but I want to point out in verse 49, <clears throat> Jesus said, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Right? He's sending his spirit, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why we think it's legitimate to say in the creed, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, right? Uh, because it's the promise of the Father sent by the Son. He said, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, um, which is what all those passages in, in Paul, in, in Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, and in Romans, they all refer to the fact that if that Spirit is in you, then guaranteed God's going to raise you from the dead just like he did Jesus Christ. If you have that Spirit... It is the promise. It is the guarantee. It is the pledge, the assurance that what's true of Jesus Christ will be one day true of you. So let me, um, let me just briefly talk about a couple of more practical um, implications of what we said about the resurrection of Jesus being an insight into our own resurrection, a guarantee and a proof of our own resurrection. First, <clears throat> think back to the words of Gandalf the white. They met someone they did not expect. Does that comfort you? Um, being a Christian means uh, committing yourself to having your expectations regularly overturned. You have a set of expectations, they need to be overturned, or else you won't understand Jesus. You won't understand the good news. You won't be comforted by the appearance of this risen Lord. You need to have your expectations, your assumptions, you, the things you believe overturned. And being a Christian means committing yourself to that. It's not committing yourself to having things finally, once and for all, figured out, nailed down. It's a, it's a process of having your expectations regularly overturned. And Jesus demolishes those for us in the most marvelous ways. And those ways are painful, right? We need... When he undermines our expectations about him, when he shocks us into uh, waking up and, and really believing in his grace, that's painful. And that's startling at first. But at the end of the day, 
it will be glorious, and it will be comforting. He had to suffer first and then enter his glory. That's what the scriptures say. That's what he points out. It's not all glory all the time for Jesus. He had to suffer. It was necessary that he, of all people, would suffer and die and then enter into his glory. And because he has done that for you, then the glory that he shares with you will far outstrip, far outweigh, far outshine any and all of your sufferings for him. When you encounter suffering, just following Jesus in his own path, suffering, death, resurrection, glory, and you know that that's the path that's laid before your feet too, um, you can know that the glory that awaits you will outstrip all of those sufferings. It puts them in a new perspective. His salvation, his salvation is a life that swallows up death. His salvation is life through death. So maybe you need your expectations overturned, and, um, and you should start expecting the same kind of thing for yourself. Doesn't sound like fun, but in the end, it's comforting. There's a lot of good ministry to be done through our suffering. There's a lot of good hope, great hope, to be held in spite of suffering. There's comfort and joy available in the midst of suffering. And that's not fanciful. It's because of Jesus Christ, because he's raised from the dead, and people have touched him and seen him and eaten with him and been assured of that. Second, um, because of the uh, nature of Jesus' resurrection, the truth of it, the assurance of it, uh, we can know, as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he's written whole books about this, you don't have to worry about your loved ones who have died when they're in Christ. That's hard, it's terrible, but you don't have to worry because as truly as Jesus was raised from the dead, they also will be raised from the dead. And, um, and they're going to be raised first, in a sense. They're going to be there first. You have that guaranteed to you because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Third, because of the nature of his resurrection, because of his body, it's, it's really part of this world, but more and better. It's true that... Um, The things that we do here, just like the things he did in his life, carried through into eternity for him in his humanity, um, the things that we do here, who we are here, have eternal consequences. And that should be good news. I'm trying to scare you with that. (laughs) Right? The things that we do here really mean something beyond our death. You know, in this world, when you die, you're going to be forgotten pretty quickly. But um, it's, it's not all for nothing, because what you do here and who you are here really matters in the longer run than that. Uh, since this isn't a throwaway world, your life here matters. This is more than practice for the new heavens and the new earth. It's more than preparation for the new heavens and the new earth. This really is somehow the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. Your life in Jesus Christ, your life in union with Christ, really is in some way 
the beginning of your everlasting life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Former things forgotten, as Isaiah said. The new has come. Behold, the new has come. Not you will be a new creation, but in a real sense, you are a new creation. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. You are truly alive in Him already. Maybe not fully, maybe not completely, but truly. You have God as your Father. You have the resurrection of life, life of Christ. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. Your identity is as a child of God. You are free from the penalty of sin. You're being freed from the power of sin. You're a citizen of heaven. You are free to love as God loves. You really are free to love as God loves. You really do take all of that with you into this world, into your job. You really take all of that with you into your job, into your marriage, into your parenting, into all of your relationships. You take the fact that this is the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth because of Jesus' grace, because of his resurrection body, because of his spirit who dwells in us. This really is the beginning of all of that. And you take all of that into all of your relationships, into all of this world. God is in the business of making things right. God is in the business of making things glorious, not just for you, but for the whole world. And in Christ, you're a part of that. You can really participate in little glimpses of that of life swallowing up death forever by loving your enemies, giving to the poor, making time for neighbors, doing the right thing at work, being gentle with your children. You can do advanced participation in the new heavens and the new earth, sort of in the most direct way, in the best way, when you're in the church. You do that advanced participation best in the church where we're doing that together, we're bearing one another's burdens, we're building one another up in love, we're encouraging each other in worship, we're delighting in God together in communion. Even when no one's looking, even when it's not a matter of your relationships at work or family or church, even when no one's looking in Christ, you are a part of the new heavens and the new earth already. You can enjoy God's presence. You can enjoy God's promises in mundane things, eating, drinking, even if you're doing that by yourself. You can just sit there, just be you, and not very well. Be you, don't even do that very well, but be thankful and be content and be joyful because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows you what's in store for you. What he is, you will be when he returns. In the risen Lord, you've come to meet someone you did not expect. He's not only alive from the dead, but he is what you will be. Does that comfort you? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for uh, not leaving us in our sin, in the darkness and despair of this world, even though these things constantly surround us, you've not left us alone. You've given us the light 
of your presence in your Son, Jesus Christ. You've given us the light of your word. You've given us the light of your Spirit who dwells in us to assure us that you are making all things new and that you've already begun that in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ himself. And uh, we thank you for overturning our expectations about who you are and about who we are and about what is going on in this world. We thank you for overturning those expectations and for granting us a glimpse of what things will be like and, in a sense, already are like in our lives and in the world because of who Jesus is. And we pray that you would uh, strengthen our faith, that you would uh, fix our eyes on Christ, not in some ethereal, mystical, strange way, but really and truly as he is bodily risen from the dead, that you would fix our eyes on this real, true, human, divine person so that we would find all of our comfort and joy and hope and longings met in him because he is good news for us. We pray that you would do this not just for our sakes, but so that we could also participate in what you're doing in this world to set everything right for the sake of those around us, for the sake of those who don't yet know you, for the sake of this whole world coming to know you. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ, the risen Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.